331 of the Survival Podcast, and today, after a pretty long break, also an episode of Bitcoin Breakout. Uh, I believe Bitcoin Breakout, it's episode 42 today, if, if my mind uh, is correct in remembering things. I actually talked to somebody by email this morning and said he's going to come by on Sunday to pick some stuff up, some plants I'm going to give him. I said, make sure you 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 text me before you you come so that I don't flake out. I've got a busy week and a crazy weekend, uh, Friday tomorrow and Saturday both. And uh, he said, well, I can't text you because you didn't give me your your number. And I said, well, gee, look at <laughs> see, I told you I was flaking out. So hopefully I won't flake out too much today. We're gonna be talking about Bitcoin today. I know that's surprising that we would talk about Bitcoin during a uh, Bitcoin breakout, but we're gonna. And that'll put up a little disclaimer for the people in the live chat there at the bottom of the screen uh, as to uh, the content that we'll be talking about today. What actually spurred this discussion is I came along Michael Saylor's keynote talk from BTC Prague, a big, big uh, Bitcoin convention over in Europe in, in Prague. And uh, I got to say it was Saylor at his best. It was probably... The best talk that I've heard him give on Bitcoin ever, and it might be the best talk that I've ever heard given on Bitcoin. And in that talk, toward the beginning of it, he said that if you wanted to preserve your wealth, there were five characteristics that you should have in an asset that you invest in. And those characteristics were it had to be scarce, desirable, durable, portable, and maintainable. I actually added five more. Mine are defendable, exchangeable, predictable, almost infinitely fractionable, and uncensorable, which he actually covered most of that, too, in other ways and other parts of his discussion. But my hope today is to not redo Michael's keynote speech. That's kind of pointless. Uh, I have a link to it in the video notes, and certainly there will be one in uh, the audio notes as, as well. And... Uh, I've got a pessimist in the live chat. It's a person I know and like. He's not a heckler or anything, but a pessimist. I'll just tell you, if you're a pessimist about this, you can keep being Eeyore and keep saying, oh, I don't know if it'll work. Or you can just take a look at the last 15 years and you can realize what you're looking at. That's your choice. No, I'm not here to sell anybody anything. I don't sell Bitcoin. I buy it. Um, I buy it and I hodl. And I don't have a Bitcoin business. You know, I talk about Bitcoin on my podcast. My podcast is my business, but my podcast is not a Bitcoin business. It's not a crypto business. I don't sell seminars. So when I say I'm not here to sell anybody on Bitcoin, I'm not. I'm here to educate you about it. And I'm here to hopefully help you uh, take a different look at it. And I need you guys to use all caps, especially on a solo show uh, with questions. And I, if you could do for me, uh, you guys that are in the live chat, if it's not a question, please don't use all caps. If it's not something for me to star for the end for Q&A, please don't use all caps. Because a lot of times I just see all caps and I hit that star and it, uh, I end up with some stuff that has nothing to do with anything. So all caps for questions. But, Josh, I'm going to answer right now because it's a real quick answer. He says, do you know much about the Ledger wallet issue? I know enough that I took Ledger off my tools page. 
I wouldn't recommend a ledger right now. And if I had all my Bitcoin on a ledger right now, um, I would get a different hardware wallet and I would move my Bitcoin to that new hardware wallet. That's that's what I can tell you, because Ledger seems to have access to seed phrases on their devices. And that's completely opposite of what Bitcoin's supposed to be. But we're not going to get deeply into self-custody or something like that um, today. We're going to we're going to stick to just the basic understanding of why Bitcoin is really, in my opinion, the only move you have to preserve wealth into the future. It's not the only form of wealth, but if you really are concerned with, I want my wealth to be preserved. If I'm not using it right now, if I'm storing it for later, you really don't have a better choice. And if you guys hear the dogs going nuts in the background, I think the pool guys here and their goal in life is to get out that door and kill him for some reason. I don't know why, but they hate him probably because they're never allowed to go out and, and meet him or what have you. So we'll just have to deal with it. Anyway, before we get into all of this, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Start9 Embassy Servers. Start9 is a fantastic sponsor. They do a massive discount because it's an expensive product. You know, several hundred dollars and up, depending on what your options are. 9% off. 9% off for MSB members. And, you know, we're talking about Bitcoin today. Well, you can run your own Bitcoin node and your own Lightning node on your Start9 server that sits right in your house. I mean, you can't have more self-custody than running your own node and using a good hardware wallet at the same time. It is a fantastic device, though, for completely taking back your digital sovereignty. We're going to hit on some things today during this episode. Uh, Charlie just opened the door, including the knob. Good job, Charlie. <laughs> anyway, we're going to hit on some things uh, about the surveillance state today uh, and censorship and control. When you're using what people refer to as the cloud, I, I just need you to understand you're all, all you're doing is using somebody else's computer. Uh, if you're using Gmail, you're using Google's computer. If you're using, let's say, Amazon web, web services, it's not the cloud, it's Amazon's computer. And anything that somebody else controls, they can, and when they feel like it, they will shut it off. They will ban you from it. There's plenty of examples of this. You can also run your own end-to-end -end encrypted uh, uh, text messaging. Why? Because you should have a right to privacy in your text messages, and your text messages right now are not private. So I really encourage you to learn more about Start9 digital computer or di digital uh, Start9 embassy servers and uh and definitely consider adding this and if you're thinking you're not technical enough to do it it's pretty simple follow the instructions if you can put apps on a smartphone you can run a Start9 next up today Paul Wheaton over at permies.com um is is got a really great product out for you guys right now it's a solar food dehydration bundle. It's several movies along with plans to build three different types of solar dehydrators. This is invaluable information. Paul does everything first rate when it comes to an educational product. It's only 35 bucks, 35 bucks. And you can learn how to make sure you can dehydrate as much food as you will ever get your hands on with no electricity whatsoever and store it almost infinitely. Dehydrated vegetables, just straight, not freeze dried, just straight up dehydrated vegetables done right, have a shelf life between 20 and 25 years. Uh, that's, and, and that's not, that's not even a hard limit. That's just kind of a generally accepted number. Uh, I'll tell you that things, once they're dehydrated, store very well. It, not exactly the same thing, but there was a, a show I did probably 12, 15 years ago. And 12, 15 years ago, um, they found these seeds 
in one of the Egyptian ruins. And they estimated these seeds were like 2,500 years old. And they planted some of them. And some of them grew. If something will grow, it's still good as food. And that just tells you what the state of dehydration does. So if you're looking for low-tech solutions um, to long-term food storage that are not grid-dependent, get this thing today. All right, now let's dig into this. I want to start off with, I want to talk about the, the common claim that people make about Bitcoin. I missed the opportunity. And, and my response to that is, no, you're missing the opportunity. And you're probably doing it because you're confusing making money with preserving and growing wealth. Those are different things. So when people say they missed the Bitcoin opportunity, what they're saying is, I didn't buy 10,000 Bitcoin when they were a dime apiece and turn myself into a billionaire. Yeah, almost nobody did. Okay? Just to be honest, almost nobody did. Most of the people that were early in the Bitcoin totally overspent or oversold it and converted it back to fiat. There was a lot of excitement with it, but there was also a lot of unknowns. They didn't know if it was going to work, right? They didn't know uh, if it was going to last. They didn't know when the price started coming down in the first bear markets after it actually became something you could buy on an exchange, that it would come back at first. There, there was a lot of even among the true believers, like a fear. And then we had all the things that happened, like the Mount Gox hacks and whatnot. I have a very good friend who today would be a billionaire if he had not, assuming he would have kept everything, had he not lost a tremendous amount of Bitcoin and some other crypto in the Mount Gox hat. Right. So understand that that probably didn't happen for most people anyway. It's a dramatically low number of people right now that have 100 Bitcoin, let alone 1,000 or more than that. So it's not about I'm going to throw this money in and I'm going to make a quick buck. And so many things in the crypto space, and it's part of why I loathe a lot of the crypto space outside of Bitcoin, is all about that. So when they say they missed the opportunity, they're saying they missed the opportunity to buy something really cheap and sell it when it's really expensive. And you're talking to a mature group of people when you say that, when you talk to Bitcoiners. Bitcoiners are incredibly mature as a group in the modern Internet age. When I say mature, I'm not talking about they're wise. I'm just saying they've been around a while. They've grown up in the Bitcoin space. There's a tremendous number of people that are part of like the class of 2016. They came in. They went through one hell of a crazy bull bear cycle. And then they did it again. And by the time you've done that a couple times, you've matured. You've grown up as a Bitcoiner. And the people that came in in like the 20 classes, like 2019, when the sailor stuff and the Tesla stuff and all that happened, unlike a lot of previous classes in Bitcoin, they came in with a really mature group of people around them that kind of when the roller coaster was going crazy and they were freaking out, wanting to get off, just kind of held their hands. The bottom's cool. The bottom's cool. Buy the shit out of the bottom. We're going to go up again, baby. And so that maturity has resulted in a lot more strength as far as people being unwilling to capitulate to a price going down. So in the 2016 cycle that went up, went through 2016, 2017, 2018, when that bull market came, there was a lot more selling there was in this last bull market. A lot of people that maybe sold half and then regretted it. And instead of this time selling, what they did is they bought because they see, right? They see the opportunity. They see the opportunity that's being presented to them right now, build and maintain and hold wealth. And what I need you to understand 
when I talk about this. And some of you are going to get really pissed off on my first bullet point today because you're going to say he doesn't know my plight. And if you listen, you'll hear that I do. I used to have your plight if you don't earn that much money. But you earn an incredible amount of wealth already if you have anything approaching a decent job. And the way I'll explain that is if you look at your annual salary, if I wrote you a check for that, a single check and handed it to you, you'd be like, holy shit, that's a lot of money. But that amount of money passes through your hands every year. And most of it never gets saved. And as you'll see today, um, a lot of what does get saved is immediately be begun to be drained. And... You know, Gooley's saying, right, he thinks land's a better way to secure generational wealth, call him a Luddite. Well, when you hear what I have to say today, you'll realize why that's not true. It's just not. It isn't. Sorry. I'm sorry. Because what is the cost across time versus what you end up with is what you have to look at. Anyway, um, you have to understand, making, making money and building wealth are not the same thing. They may be related to each other, but they're not the same thing. And... The quality of life you have right now, to, to make my point about how much wealth that you actually have and have access to and have passed through your hands in a lifetime, is the quality of life that it buys. If the year was 1700 and you were not a noble or a royal or some really high up merchant class member, you had a shitty quality of life to a large degree. You actually had a lot of freedom because even though you had this hierarchical feudal state, you could only do so much with the technology of the time and manpower and, and the limitations because of things like having a hard money that became the governor of the government, right? So gold, the reason they demonetized gold is they hated it because it was the governor of the government. And gold was a fine, hard money for its time. It just doesn't work in today's world. It does not. But today's world didn't exist when they got rid of gold. So they didn't get rid of gold so that we could electronically wire payments around the world. When they got rid of gold and they built fiat, then somebody developed a way about 20 years later, really, to effectively move money around really, really easy in payments networks. I mean, the payments networks of today, they were developed in the 50s and the 60s and a little bit in the 70s, and we're still using that legacy shit that's 40 years old now. But your quality of life is better than the royal family's quality of life in the year 1700. The duke, the duchess, the princess, the prince, the king, the queen did not have a thermostat in their castle to adjust their temperature to whatever they wanted it to be. They didn't have a streaming service to bring them content. They didn't have the access to material like you're listening to right now. They didn't have cars. They didn't have trains. They didn't have planes. They didn't have trucks. They didn't have, you know, highly available running water anywhere that they wanted it. They didn't have electricity. If you think about your quality of life today compared to even a very well-off person 300 years ago, it's kind of staggering how much wealth you have. So then you have to start asking yourself, why don't we become wealthy? If we live in a society where a welder or a plumber, or an electrician. And I'm not talking down. Those are all great blue-collar trades. But a welder or a plumber or an electrician today has a lifestyle that a noble from 300 years ago couldn't even comprehend. 
not only can that plumber travel across continents if they want to, but they can do it in hours versus weeks with a hell of a lot risk, a lot less risk when they do so. So with a society like that, where a, a, a plumber, right, even one that's not like running, not Joe the plumber that ran his own company, right, not an entrepreneur, just a guy that works hourly as a plumber for a plumbing company, has somewhere between eighty dollars and $120,000 a year passed through his hands. Why don't the average Americans and the average Westerners become wealthy? And understand when I say Westerners, too, compared to most of the world today, the average person that listens to my podcast is rich as hell compared to the majority of the population of the world, living on about 2 to $4 a day. It's reality. And you can try to say relative currency strength or whatever. In the end, they're living on about 2 to $4 of not relative currency strength, but um, reconciled currency strength. That's the average person in the world is living on 2 to $4 a day. The average person, to, you know, even makes minimum wage. I get what is it, seven bucks an hour, right? That you're making five times what the poorest part of the majority of the population has. Yet we're all broke, right? Well, we're not all broke, but many of us are. And most people, even when they amass what looks like pretty decent wealth, they don't become as wealthy as you would expect given what they have. So here's why. Much of your earnings are required for you to live. The reason the money comes in and the money goes out so quickly is because you have to pay rent, you have to pay an electric bill. That quality of life you have has to be funded. And there's only so much you can do with that. There's ways to reduce that outflow. People that go out and buy the most expensive house that the bank says they'll give them a mortgage for tend to be what we call house poor. At least they have some underlying equity, but as we'll talk about with property later, Property taxes are eating them alive at the same time they think they're building equity. You buy a house because you need a house to live in, and it makes sense. and You can service the debt and obligations to it for less than you can renting something that would give you equal quality. And then the equity growth underneath is a byproduct and getting some, not all, of your money back, even if you sell it at a profit, even if you sell it at a profit. So that's one thing. It's just your earnings are required to ex exist. So a huge portion of your monthly earnings go out in your monthly, basically your required spending, right? Your non-optional optional spending. Then, but the other side of it is most Americans, most Westerners have bad monetary habits. Like they don't treat money with respect. And the same person that will tell me that they're broke, if I were to have them keep a spending journal for a month, if they told the truth in it, they would blush when they handed it to me. Because I would be like, well, we're trying to fix your shit, and what's this? What's that? Did you really need to do this? Why did you do this? And if you're not bitching about money, and you, you, lit, you spend on some things you really enjoy that maybe you didn't need, I get it. But when you're trying to build wealth in your early life, you have to fix the spending habits then. Because if you don't, what ends up happening is, you become a 45-year-old making $150,000 a, a year who has about the same amount of money at the end of the month to save and invest as he did when he was 25, making 35000 a year. And it's all gone into the lifestyle. And the lifestyle is made up of non-discretionary expenditures, but a shitload of discretionary expenditures. So we have bad monetary habits. So that's something we can control. 
And then a non-discretionary, we really don't have that much control over. We also have um, the cost of your existence goes up with your income. So what I mean by that is, yeah, maybe you're earning more money this year than last year, but your underlying cost, this is not inflation yet. It's back in a way related to these bad monetary habits. We tend to, as we make more, find more things that we need. Now, if we didn't need them last year, we probably don't need them this year. So we have this, it's basically bad lifestyle design. Instead of actually having a budget that we apply to our lives, we just kind of wing it the entire time. Then comes the inflation. This is where your money, they, so what I'm talking, what I was talking about last, that last point really is still kind of inflationary, but it's inflation against your expenses. The real problem with, with inflation is it's, it's, it's against your savings. It's against your savings. You're trying, you're working hard. You're the rat in the wheel. You're the ant in the antlion den. And you're just struggling your ass off to get ahead. And you, and the ant finally escapes the antlion den. He gets out of the den and he had a little piece of food with him that lured him down in there in the first place. Cause the last ant that got eaten by the antlion dropped it. So he got away with something. So he takes it and he hides it in his little ant hole. And it begins to immediately shrink in nutrient value. But he's got to go out and do it again. And every time he goes out, he has to work harder to make the same little extra crumb. And when you finally put the crumb away, inflation devalues the crumb. Such that if you hold cash for 100 years, you'll end up with almost zero spending uh, capability. I'll show you a slide from Sailor's uh, presentation later. If you had a million dollars right now and you put it in cash and you let it sit in cash for 100 years, you'll end up with less than $1,000 of spending power based on past performance, and it'll probably get worse, okay? It'll probably get worse than it already was. You'd end up with about $980 in spending power. So, yeah, that's over 100 years, and you're not worried about 100 years because you're not thinking seventh generation like we talk about thinking in the Bitcoin world. But that process is playing out over time. While you're trying to save over the 30, 40, 50 years of your working life, it's eroding. This is, you know, where we're focusing on right now the problem. This is how this happens. And this is what happens. The system literally absorbs the entire output of your lifetime when you think about it that way. The money's being devalued as earned, as spent, as saved, and as invested. So the average person lives somewhere between about 70 years and 100 years of age, right? Um, a 100 years is basically a human lifetime. Not everybody makes it, but it's a good way to look at it, like the life of a human, 100 years. And so if your wealth is being attrited at that rate, that means the parasitic class literally takes everything from you throughout your life. And when you see it that way and you realize that's how it's designed, now you understand why people are so quick to spend and slow, so slow to save. Inflation rewards spenders, right, and people that go into debt. It's, it's a ba a, a, an ass-backwards situation, right? But it's true. Now, 
the way to think about this, and it's directly from Mike Saylor's talk again, so I want to give him credit. I always try to give people credit for things when I'm using the material. He describes it as an economic war on all wealth, an economic war. And the purpose of that economic war is to redistribute wealth. Now, when you hear redistribute wealth, especially knowing this audience, it's primarily small government, right wing, libertarian and anarcho. It's one of those three categories that 90 percent of this audience will fit into. The first thing you think when I say redistribute wealth is probably communism or socialism. No, that is not the intent of this economic war. Socialism and its promise is one way in which you accomplish wealth redistribution. But it's not about taking your money and giving it to a person that hadn't had a bath in a week, right, and is protesting the system, man. We've got to fight the power of the proletariat, man, right? It's, you know, the college kid that has the communist. It's not about giving him your money. It's about that parasitic class sucking value out of their money so that they actually have basically wealth based on everything at one time. That's who gets your money. Bankers get your money. Oligarchs get your money. Politicians get your money and bureaucrats get your money. That's where it goes. It doesn't redistribute to the person they've conditioned you to believe is your enemy. Now, I wish those people would get up and work, too, but you can see why they don't. Like, do you think it's possible that some of these people have just worked out in their head, even if they can't explain it the way I'm explaining it right now? They're going to take everything I have, so I might as well take everything I can get. That is the underlying philosophy, and this monetary system is designed to create about half of the people to act that way and about half of the people to believe that they can still get ahead, and they're the ones that do all the work spinning the bike, turning the coil, making the energy, making the stuff. But we're still going to extract like a vampire everything they've worked for across their entire lives. And when you die, whatever's left behind will be a fraction of the value of the life force you gave to it. And this war has always existed. And I'm going to give somebody else some credit right now. And the person I'm going to give credit to is Jason Lowry in his book, Soft War. Jason is a major, I believe, in the U.S. Uh, Space Force. And soft war is about a new form of war- warfare, a cyber warfare, and the role Bitcoin plays in it by being infinitely dis- defensible, which we'll get into a little bit later. But I was listening to an interview he gave. I think it was with Peter McCormack. It may not have been. I don't remember the interview. Er, I only remember really listening to Jason. And it was on one of my road trips. And what he opened up with, and I really don't think it was Peter McCormack now. I'm not sure who it was. Um, but what he opened up with is that we first, if we're going to talk about war, we have to define war. And people today tend to only see war as like two countries shooting guns, bullets, bombs, and missiles at each other. That's how we define war. And that's like, you know, a declared war, a military war, what have you. But we also have other forms of wars, right? We have trade wars. You know, we use sanctions as a a component within something like a trade war. And so humans have many forms of war. And we actually hate war. We don't like it. Now, there are war war mongers. I'm saying the average human doesn't really like war. We're the most capable war creature that has ever been created in the biology of planet Earth. 
we have these big ass brains and we can devise incredible means of warfare and yet we don't really want to do it. We do it when we feel that we have to. And the more this is why I teach abundance thinking and building abundance in your life. The, the more scarcity, the more war. Because what war really is, is a battle over scarce resources. So what we want in the world for less war is complete abundance of resources. And if you've really done the, the game theory with Bitcoin, you know the way you get abundance of resources have scarcity and money. When you have scarce money, you end up with abundance of everything else. And money is hard and money retains in value and grows in value across time. And if you do it the other way, you will have scarcity of all things. And those scarcities will move like bubbles through the ecosystem and different things will be scarce at different times, creating different forms of confrontation. But war is that. It is a battle for scarce resources. Again, credit to Jason Lowry and software on that. So what that means is there was war long before there were humans. Have you ever thought about it that way? Like we think without humans, there wouldn't be any war. Bullshit. Go watch a Disney movie, freaking Lion King. Hyenas and lions. I know they anamorphized the animals and it was all stupid. And get, but the, the concept that lions and, 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 and hyenas are adversaries and fight for resources up to violence and killing each other is real. But you, you don't have to wait till mammals evolve. You can go back to the first microorganisms. Once you had a diversity of microorganisms, if you look at microorganisms under a microscope, you watch an ongoing battle for resources. And so war is as old as time. War is as old as life, as we understand life anyway. Could even be older. We just don't maybe understand that form of life or form of existence. But if you look at war as a conflict using force to obtain resources, then war is as old as life itself. And then you need to realize you're fighting a war where you have no capability of using an offensive weapon. There's no offensive weapon in this war. You do not get to stop the government from creating inflation, and the government can't stop creating inflation. They're in a system that requires inflation. You can't get the government to stop extracting money and using it for wars and other things you find reprehensible. You can't. You can keep believing if you just keep voting harder and harder that someday that's all going to change, but it's not. If I made you emperor of the planet right now, you would not be able to stop inflation in the current economic system that we have. If everybody was as honest as possible, it still wouldn't work. It's not going to work. It's outside of your, your, your circle of control, and it's even outside your circle of influence. So it's only good for observation and awareness. You don't have any means to change this. I am a big advocate of self-defense, right? And having guns, you can't change it with a gun. You, you, if you have a ton of money, you still can't change it. You can leverage your money. You can make lots of money with money in this system. You can play the casino. And if you get high enough to where you're rigged, you're in the rigged part of the system, you'll never lose. You'll be the house. But you can't fix it. And most of you don't want to be in the rigged game. And even if you do, you're not sure how to ever get there. So you have to work with what you have. So what you need is a monetary instrument 
that is defensible. You need a defensive shield-like weapon. You need to be the person that it's like a Marvel comic character or something that like you don't really have a whole lot of capability to go out and do damage to other people. But if somebody attacks you, like nothing happens You shoot laser beams at you, punch you, kick you, throw you up against the wall, drop a bridge on you and you just and walk away. Yeah, that's what you have to have. That's the only weapon that you can use in this type of a war. It's the only weapon you can use in this type of war is a indestructible defensive tool. And this brings us to Sailor's five characteristics as a way to preserve wealth. The first thing is the, the item you're using, the asset you're converting one asset into another with has got to be scarce. It has to be scarce. Dollars are not scarce. There will be a trillion new dollars born before the end of this year. A trillion. A trillion this year. We have over 130 trillion of unfunded liabilities. Those are bills we know will come due that we will never be able to pay based on everything we already know. And they will pay the bill up until the system blows apart. And the way they will pay the bill is what? They will print $130 trillion between now and 2055. That's where that number comes from. They're going to print $130 trillion between now and 2055. One more time. They are going to print $130 to $150 trillion, honestly, between now and 2055. 2055 sounds a long way off. It's not that far. Those of you guys that are my age, just think backwards and realize how close that actually is for these youngins, right? So you have to have something that's scarce. So what's scarce? People say gold is scarce. Gold, I love it, builder of castles. Gold is not scarce. It's more scarce than aluminum, right? It's more scarce than copper, but as a thing, it's not scarce. If the price of gold doubles tomorrow, the extraction rate of gold will pretty much double tomorrow. We've gotten better and better at getting gold out of less and less reserves of gold. We can move metric shit tons for a few pounds. Gold is not scarce. Real estate is more scarce than gold, but it's also not scarce. We can keep building new things. There's tons of land that's undeveloped. Real estate is not scarce. Real estate also fails on some other things that we'll say for a little bit later. But gold is not scarce, right? There's not a lot of things in the universe that can be used as money that are also scarce. Now, again, there is some scarcity in gold. You know what's more scarce? This is also from Sailor's Talk. The S&P 500, 500 best companies on the market, right? That's, that's a more scarce thing than real estate or gold. And, and, and picking the 10 best of them, those 10 are really scarce. But you know what's not scarce? How many shares of them there are. Go look at the, the, the market cap and the, and the total outstanding shares of a company like Amazon. And then realize what the purpose of that stock is. It's so that company can do business and use your money instead of their own. That's, that's the purpose. That's why you issue stock in a company and sell ownership in your company. That's what stock is. So that you get the money into the company and you use somebody else's money to grow the company. That's, that's exactly what it is. So you need a scarce asset. There's nothing available today that will work as money that's more scarce than Bitcoin. And we have a known quantifiable absolute scarcity.
when you talk, hear somebody talk about a stock-to-flow model and people like that, it's broken. It doesn't work. Well, the pricing predictions done with it were actually fairly accurate, but didn't work out exactly the way that they were predicted. But stock-to-flow is a real ratio. All that means is there's this much available, and there's enough. This is how much flow is coming in. So the, the, the higher we have mined in Bitcoin, there's your stock, and your flow keeps declining. Every four years, it cuts in half. The next halving is less than a year away. And when stock, the flow goes to zero, then you're done. And you have you, you basically have no half-life to your money anymore. Your money becomes immortal, lives far longer than you anyway. Moving on, it has to be desirable. People have to desire it. Now, there's a lot of people who say, Bitcoin's not desirable. I don't give a damn about it. Okay, that's fine. You know, but that, the same person would say, well, diamonds are desirable. I don't give a damn about diamonds. I, I've bought diamonds three times in my life, and they were all for my wife, and I, did, I don't really give a damn about a diamond. I don't care about diamonds. I think diamonds are a scam. I think diamonds are a complete scam. Diamonds exist with an artificial scarcity. So is a diamond desirable? It depends on who you ask. In this case, there has to be enough people that desire the thing that it creates a market for it so that somebody wants it. Well, given that right now people are paying over $30,000 per Bitcoin, it's clearly desirable. We, we've got that done. It has to be durable. You've heard the term durable goods. So this is where people get in trouble. Well, real estate is great investment, man. Is it durable? What happens to a piece of property you don't do anything at all with, right? What happens to it? It degrades, especially if it's got a building on it. It's not very durable. It requires maintenance. Maintenance is expensive. One of the things that was used as uh, money earliest in human history was grain and bills for grain. So the pharaoh or the king or whatever would have these great big stores of grain and people would bring them in. And then people had allocations of grain or got paid in grain or something like that. And they would say, well, I want to carry around 50 tons of grain. So they would get bills for the grain. And let's let's leave out the part where the, the pharaohs and the kings started playing the monetary game of the banks and issuing more slips than they had grain. Let's let that go. But how long will that grain last? It's more durable than cabbage, but it still rots away to dust in time. It is eaten by mice and rats, and pretty much every critter out there is a threat to it. If it gets wet, it goes moldy, and it turns to poison. It's not durable. This is why we use things like gold and silver and copper and bronze as forms of money throughout history, because it is absolutely durable. Gold can't be destroyed. It's still going to be there. It's got some things going. It passes the durability test. It doesn't cost a lot of money to store gold. It actually costs a ton of money to move it physically in any significant amount because it requires a massive amount of security to get it done. But it's durability, and if you have $100,000 worth of gold and you put it in a safe in your house, it costs you nothing to store it. It does get past that. It also is going to lose value against purchasing power in the neighborhood of about 2% per year across the full spectrum of time. It just is. You can price it in fiat dollars and say, oh, look, it went up. But what does it buy? 
what does it buy? That's how you have to look at it. And we're not going to have another gold rebase experiment like happened in 1933 and then was reiterated in 71. That's that's done. So the effect of that is now gone. You don't get that ever again for this fake repression. And now you just get reality. Gold goes up. They mine more gold. There's inflation in gold. And they, we will never mine all the gold on the planet. There will always be some more to mine. And as we start exploring space, we're going to find like a freaking asteroid that's like 40% gold. There, there is not a finite limit, but it's durable. It needs to be portable. It's another thing Michael said. If you want real wealth, you can preserve. Remember, our primary goals in this episode, the preservation and building of wealth, it must be portable. To function as money in the modern age, it needs to be portable because if K-Bonk that's hanging out right here telling us industrial diamonds do make good sharpening services, they absolutely do. Um, but if I want to give K-Bonk some money for something, I want to buy something from him, I need to be able to get it to him without getting in my car and driving to wherever K-Bonkville is. I don't know where K-Bonk lives. I don't know if he wants to tell us or not. But I don't, I don't want to have to drive to K-Bonk town to give him you know, my gold to get whatever widget it is that he's going to sell to me. I want to be able to make a transaction that goes to K-Bonk, and then I want that thing to come to me through the mail. I want to use the existing distribution system that we have without having to pay a courier to take him my gold or risk my gold in the mail or risk my silver in the mail. I almost get no, nobody purchases MSB for silver anymore. Now that Bitcoin exists, I, you know, I get a couple orders a week for MSB for Bitcoin. Um, back in the day, I used to get a couple, three orders a week for MSB for my membership in silver. People would mail me, you know, two ounces of silver. And they would manually enter their thing and email them, um, what have you, right? And uh, it came off, yeah, you did send me something. Thanks for that. But I didn't know it was you when you sent it. <laughs> and I don't remember where you sent it from. But wherever it is, I don't want to have to go to K-Bonk land to buy something from K-Bonk is, is my point. But that's not really what portable is all about when it comes to the ability to preserve wealth. Countries fail. Banks fail. People are attacked. People throughout history have become refugees. Now, when we hear refugee today, we think of the way the word is completely abused on our southern border, or we think of really poor people from, you know, very harsh places that are running for their lives and they're downtrodden and they have so little. But history is full of wealthy refugees, too. Wealthy refugees, smart refugees, are usually people that are smart. They see the writing on the wall, and they exit before they have to climb under the fence. Like, there were a shit ton of people that were refugees from, from Germany before the war really raged. When a lot of people thought, oh, it's going to be okay. There were a lot of people that got the hell out. There were refugees in the American Civil War that simply went to one side or the other extreme of the nation and said, I'm just not going to be part of this. Right. So the, the, and if you can go back throughout thousands of years of recorded history and people. Yes, Einstein was a refugee. We don't really think of it that way, but he was. And so you need to understand that there is the potential that at some point you may need to leave. 
Now, in the United States, one of the things we have with the republic still, for now anyway, is the freedom of movement within the republic. And you might be a refugee right now, and you never even thought of yourself that way. You're a refugee because you decided the hell with New York during this, the COVID scandemic, and you went to Texas or Florida. You're a refugee. You just are not an international refugee. You're an internal refugee. And when you did that, you probably changed some things about your finances. I don't know. Maybe you have a national bank and you left your money in the same bank. But, you know, if you're a person that does business with local bank branches, you probably closed a bank account, opened a bank account. You had to port your money from one place to another. Bitcoin's information. It's 12 words in your head. It's a hardware wallet and a passcode. It can even be a software wallet alone, and that's not the best thing, but it's still incredibly portable that way. If I decide to haul ass and go to Costa Rica or go to Nicaragua or go to El Salvador or wherever, I don't know, France, Australia, probably wouldn't. But if I decide to go somewhere, I don't have to do anything to keep my wealth at all. I don't even have to take it with me. I just need 12 words. I just need 12 words. And so it's when I say portable here and what Michael Seller was talking about, he said portable. He means that wherever you go, you have your wealth. It can't be confiscated when you want to leave. If you have half a million dollars in a bank account and you decide to depart the United States, the United States government can prevent you from taking your own money. You think you have money? Go to the bank if you have a a good size savings account, go down to the bank. Let's say you have $20,000 in a bank in a savings account and ask them for $20,000 in cash and see what they tell you. They'll give you a check. Well, what can you do with that? You can go give it to another bank. Your money's not portable. It doesn't go wherever you want it to go. And let's say that you were like, you know what? I beat the system, Jack. I have a shitload of cash. It's mine. It is portable. I can put it in a suitcase and go anywhere I want to with it. If you want to do something with it beyond buy groceries this week, you want to go buy a car, you want to buy a house, etc. you need to, honestly, you need to get that money into their system to be able to spend it. That's why there's an entire um, industry called money laundering. Because these freaking criminals, some of them are awful criminals, and some of them are people that maybe you and I wouldn't consider criminals, and there's a whole spectrum of that, but they make tons of money. The most common thing used in organized crime in the world is U.S. $100 paper bills. When they say Bitcoin is used for nefarious purposes, they are full of shit because Bitcoin is used in a fraction of what $100 U.S. bills are used in suitcases, just like the movies used to be, right? That's the case. And they have money laundering because these these entities make tons of money, but they want to do things with it, and they have to push it through various little shell corporations and things to get it back on the books so they can play in that casino. Your money's not portable. Your wealth is not portable. If it's going to be something that preserves wealth indefinitely, it needs to be portable. Next is it has to be maintainable. It has to be maintainable. So there's a couple of things that hit you with maintaining a thing. There's maintenance costs, but then there's also ownership costs. So when, when you go 
out and you buy a house and you say, okay, now I have real property. First of all, you have real property on the books in their legal system where you can be sued, you can have assets seized, et cetera. Somebody can take your property, right? But that's a defensibility issue that we'll get to in a bit. But maintaining it, they'll take it if you don't pay the property tax on it. So there's a property tax on it. Um, Michael Saylor says if you own a million dollar property in Miami, you have about twenty to twenty five thousand dollars annually in taxes. So if your property itself is not appreciating in real underlying equity by at least the property taxes alone, you're already underwater with that you know so-called valuable property. Now, how do you make money in real estate? There's two things you do to make money in real estate. Remember, I'm about preserving wealth, not making wealth today. But if you want to make money in real estate, there's two things you have to do. One is you have to get somebody else to pay for it. If you can get somebody else to pay for your real estate and have cash flow on top of it, then you do make money. Then it is a, a, a an asset that drives building of wealth. And the underlying equity, it really is yours. Okay? It really is yours because somebody else paid for it. So that means you have to be a landlord. That's number one. Number two, you don't spend your own money. You don't spend your own money. And this is something that's common with all of the ways that people become billionaires in this system. They never do it with their money. They never do it with their money. They do it with their shareholders' money. They do it with the fiat system's money. It's the Cantillion effect. It's how close are you to the monetary faucet. And one of the things about real estate is you can, once you demonstrate that you have the capability to buy a property, hold a property, and fund the property from uh, rental income, it gets really easy to get another loan. And every time you add a property, it gets easier to go get more money. It's still a gamble because if the market shits the bed in the middle of it, as many people have become millionaires in real estate working really hard, the same number of people have over time lost everything in real estate. It's, it's a gamble, but it can be done. But it is extremely expensive to maintain. You want to own a bunch of properties, you basically have to, to, to build a property management company or you have to pay a property management company. You have to deal with people. You have to deal with maintenance. You have to deal with things breaking. It costs money to hold real estate. Okay, And this is one of its limitations. It's also, you know, earlier we talked about portable. It's not portable. If you own real estate in a country, you want to leave that country, Gotta, you're going to have to sell it. It's not immediately fungible. You can't just instantly get the money that you're owed on it. Even if you sold it to somebody that you know, buys it the next day, there's time to close. Then there's taxes. There's implications there. You, it's not clean when you want to leave, but you can't maintain it. Now, here's my five additions that I think you need in addition to Mike's five. One, it needs to be defendable. As I was saying earlier, you can't get by in the society that we're in today with an offensive weapon when it comes to money. You need something that is, you don't have to do anything to defend it. The only thing you have to do to defend your Bitcoin is don't give away your key phrase. That's it. That's the only thing you have to do. There's no ongoing cost to holding Bitcoin. Transactions are expensive. I said there's no ongoing cost. To holding it. There's so many people, they look for like this, 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 like, I'm going to find the silver bullet and kill this thing. You're not. People have been trying to do it for 15 years. You're not. 
There's a website called 99bitcoins.com. It has the Bitcoin obituaries. And I think it's well up over like 600 times now that Bitcoins died in the words of the media and various outlets, right? And it's still here. It's still doing what it does. But it's in, it infinitely defendable because it requires a massive amount of energy to move in mining, right, or to create it. So miners create the next you know, block of 6.25 Bitcoin, right? So that, that takes a lot of energy. The miners do that. And the miners are financially compensated for that. But once you have Bitcoin sitting in your wallet, if it's a cold wallet, and it should be if it's a significant amount, you can take that cold wallet, throw it in a safe. Even if somebody breaks in, drills the safe, gets it out of there, they got to figure out how to get into it first. By the time that they did that, it would be very easy for you having the seed phrase to just move it. So you have a little bit of cost there only when there's a security breach. It doesn't cost you anything. There's no cost to hold Bitcoin at all. There's no tax cost if all you're doing is if you buy Bitcoin and hold it, there's no income tax. It's unrealized gains. Eventually, if you get to a point where you want to start having cash flow from it, you can borrow against an appreciating asset almost infinitely if you do it right. So it's completely defensible. It has to also be exchangeable. If you can't exchange it into something else, you have a problem. And this is probably right now Bitcoin's biggest Achilles heel, right? Um, if there is one place that the powers that be could clamp down on Bitcoin, it would be the on-ramps and the off-ramps. This is also a game of like Mexican standoff that I don't think a lot of people understand. There's a tremendous amount of money and there's a huge future in Bitcoin. And if one country clamps down, we already know what happens. They didn't even make it illegal. They shut down mining in China. And all that happened was all those resources came mostly to the United States. And I think Zakistan actually picked up a bunch. So if you... If you put the kibosh, you open the door for another nation to adopt this. And in some ways, it's like something with the power to have influence long term that, let's say, nuclear weapons do. I know that sounds crazy because one is an offensive machine and the other is a defensive machine, right? The, the fear of a nuclear weapon, yes, it becomes a defensive capability because somebody's afraid you're going to use it. But the real force that a nuclear weapon has is being detonated over a target and destroying everything. Bitcoin doesn't do that. It just sits there like a rock, except you can't get to it. You can't do anything with it unless you prove that you have a right to control some piece of it. So if they did clamp down on the on-ramps, let's say in the United States, well, there's going to be other major nations that don't. So I don't know that they would do that. And I still think we would get through it because it would remain exchangeable for goods. But right now, that's its biggest weakness. And I think we are about to go through something over the next couple of years where that's going to stop being the case. It's pretty evident that, in my opinion anyway, the people that make these decisions, they may not like this. They may not like this, but they also accept its inevitability. They accept its inevitability. 
And it's something that like there is a place where you co-op the thing as best you can because you realize you can't beat it. It has to be predictable. I think if you're going to preserve your wealth of the thing, there has to be a predictability to it. Now, I don't mean rate of return annualized year over year over a decade or five years or something like that. Um, Bitcoin is still in an incredibly volatile state of its life. There's a lot of ups and downs. The volatility has gone down as the price has gone up across time, by the way, though. If you look at it that way, you can say, well, look, it went from here to here, and that's a huge crash. Or Go back and look at the first bull market, bear market cycles. They were far more volatile than the one we just went through. Far more, And it was even that was predictable. Guys, I don't sit around studying Bitcoin all day, every day. In fact, I, I believe that one of the reasons that people have so much trouble with what I try to teach with this is because it's so simple, the mind repels it. It's too simple. The key to building and preserving with Bitcoin, building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin, stay humble, stack sats, never sell. That's the whole formula. That's it. Now, you might want to learn about it because it's interesting. It teaches you things about your life. But that's all you have to do. You don't have to look at the price. You don't have to look at the price. You don't have to analyze the price. You don't have to predict the price. And that's pretty much where I sit. But all I did was a little bit of math. And I called the bottom four months before the bottom came in at 14,400. Somebody look it up, see how close I was. I think it was in like, within like 700 bucks or something. I think I said 14,440 just kind of trying to show off. And I, I didn't nail it. It never actually got down to my prediction, but it was close. So it was predictable. But why is it predictable? Because its issuance is a known and a constant. Every 10 minutes, there'll be a block for the next, what is it, 10 months? Every block will result in a new issuance of 6.25 Bitcoin. When that day comes, it will go to 3.125. And we can predict within a couple days when that next halving will occur. And we know it will cut in half and exactly what it will cut in half. And we know that all the way out until the last Bitcoin is mined. I think it's like 2050 or something like that. Not 20, 2150, something like that. So it is predictable. It is known. And it's only known because there's absolute scarcity to it. And and how long it'll take doesn't even really matter as much as the fact there's an absolute scarcity. Uh, Joe says 15 to 16K. I think it did below 16 for a few hours last year. I think it was somewhere like 15.5 or something. I think it was off by like just over a thousand bucks. But I'm, I'm not sure. I don't, again, I don't focus on this. But I really think it's hard for people to comprehend how simple this is. And it's simple because it's predictable. Because we already know. What I said sounded really brilliant. I don't know that I'm that smart, but just came to me one day. That Bitcoin is to economic economics. is The speed of light is to physics. The speed of light is used in physics because it's a constant. Once you know the velocity of light, you can use it as a constant in calculating anything else in the universe because it doesn't change. And it doesn't change at all, right? You could slow down light by pushing it through something like glass. That's called nominal velocity of propagation, breaking out a brain cell from 25 years ago, right? So there is a uh, an attenuation if you push something through glass. So like when you have a fiber optic cable, the light in that cable does not travel at the speed of light in a vacuum. That's the constant. But that speed of light in a vacuum is a constant. 
If you have a car somehow capable of doing half the speed of light and you turn the lights on and the light goes out ahead of it, it doesn't move any faster. It doesn't, it doesn't take the velocity from the car and add it to, uh, its own velocity. It's a constant. Bitcoin's a constant. Its issuance and its limits are a constant. And that makes it a great way to preserve wealth because you can bet on it. You can bet on it. I used to say long ago, don't put any money in Bitcoin or any crypto that you wouldn't be comfortable going to a casino with and putting on a craps table. That it's for extra money that you don't need because at that time it was an immature asset. And I could see what it could become, but I couldn't tell you that it would. Today, I feel completely different. Bitcoin is where any money you're not going to spend in the next couple of years should go. Other than some of your other, like, you have retirement planning and you still invest in equities and all, and you're happy with what you're getting. Okay, fine. When you have surplus capital, it should go into Bitcoin infinitely at this point. The only thing you'll wish someday in the future is you had more of it. And someday you will capitulate to this if you're a holdout. I, I know it's hard to accept now, but if you just look at its advancement across time and what it's been able to do in such a short period of time, it is but measured by economics, the most successful thing humans have ever built within a decade. That's saying something. And there is what it's doing is it's absorbing other forms of wealth. You have to think about Bitcoin like a giant sponge. And every time somebody takes money that they could have put in a bank, that they could have bought a CD in a bank with, that they could have bought a bond with, that they could have bought gold with, that they could have bought silver with, and they put it in a Bitcoin into long-term holding. They're demonetizing these other assets. That's what it's doing. So wherever you see wealth being held, understand that is one of the places the sponge can absorb wealth from. Because everything I'm telling you today is true. These, there's some opinion mixed in here, but overall, the overriding things I'm telling you today are not opinion. They're fact. They're fact. When it's an unknown, I tell you it's an unknown. When it's my opinion, I tell you it's my opinion. But predictability of the Bitcoin network is a fact. It's a math fact. It also has to be almost infinitely fractionable to be money, especially if it is a non-inflationary form of money. Okay? You have to think about what that means. If I have something like the dollar, and it, def it has a, a, an infl a high inflation, and it is high, and it goes from, you know, a dollar in 1913, if you just kept it as a dollar, today has a spending power of about two cents. I don't really need my money to be infinitely fractionable in that model, do I? There's a lot of talk about getting rid of the penny. Like, what the hell do we really need pennies for? Just round everything off to the nickel, and would it, re would it really matter? And I think if they ever do it, there'll be a lot of, oh, no, I want my pennies back. People that have never used coins in 10 years will shriek for about five minutes. And a five-minute news cycle is about three weeks. And then the pennies will disappear, and no one will give two shits that their bill could have been 3404 and it was 3405. They just won't care. They just, it, you don't care now. And so if anything, you see 
units in a dollar-like system disappear. Do you know that we used to have a half cent? There used to be half cents. Look it up if you don't know about it. We also, I believe, had a, a two or three cent coin at one time because cents had some power, right? Made it easy to give ch change when you were spending something like, you know, $20 worth of gold or a dollar's worth of silver to have some intermediate instruments. Well, those are gone. They're unnecessary. They serve no real purpose. I believe we could take nickels and pennies out of the system and it really wouldn't change much for people. Honestly, I think you could get rid of dimes too. Quarters, quarters of dollars are close enough to anything that it won't matter in the end. It won't matter. The, the market would adapt and adjust. When you're dealing with a currency that's purchasing power goes up over time, you need to be able to keep breaking it down to smaller and smaller fragments. What's a gram of gold worth right now in fiat? How hard is it to guarantee the purity and break one gram off gold? I know we'll use silver. Now you have a bimetallic monetary system, and one's going to be favored over the other. Plus, you're still back to how do I how much can I fractionalize silver? Go look what it costs to buy silver, raw silver, and you know like uh, just coins, not not government issue uh, rounds, tenth ounce rounds, ten of those versus a single one ounce round, and then go see how much it costs to buy a ten ounce round. And you'll pay less per ounce the more you buy because it's one to be manufactured instead of 10 or 100. And so you have to be able to, if you want to preserve wealth of a monetary instrument, at some point you may want to spend it. You need to be able to fractionalize it down to a level that's hard to even think of. I don't know, like seeing something this morning on Noster. And going, that was pretty funny. And I sent the dude 55 sats, which is a pennies value in Bitcoin. But I've literally sent people just for fun two sats. Go do the math on that. And do you think that a Satoshi is the smallest amount of Bitcoin we could ever send? The answer is no. We could make fractional Satoshis. Without increasing the quantity, we could increase the fractionalization. We're so far from even needing to think about that, it's ridiculous. Bitcoin is almost perfect in the way that it is for its ability to function. And for those that will bring up things like transaction costs and all, I'm not going into lightning and fediments and stuff like that today. But all of your objections are dead. They're already dead. They're already gone. They're already out the window. The people with the whole BSV and Bitcoin Cash and all that shit – you guys are the Japanese soldiers sitting in a pillbox on an island two years after the war was over thinking you're still fighting the war. No one cares anymore. You're not you, you are in the, you're in the rearview mirror so far. You're a little tiny dot. You're like Carl Sagan's pale blue dot to us. It's it's done. Um, it also has to be uncensorable. You have to have something if you want to preserve wealth today. That some person sitting a thousand miles away from you can't go, hmm, American legend, he said some things I don't like. No spending for you. Click. And people on and on about CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. I agree. They're a terrible, terrible demon that should never be allowed to rise, and they probably are going to be allowed to rise anyway. 
Do you think they need CBDCs to shut off your ability to spend money right now? Do you really? Have you talked to somebody from Lebanon who robbed their own bank to get their own money out of it yet? Have you ever met somebody that's had their bank account shut down, locked, seized? I mean, I've seen stories. Person goes to the bank one day. I would like some of my money, please. I'm sorry, you can't have it. Why not? I am not at the teller looking at this person who put the money in their bank says, I can't tell you why. I'm not allowed to tell you why, but you have to leave now. And if you don't leave, some security goon comes and throws you out of the bank that you're a customer of. You don't think that's happened? Happens all the time. Really great member of this audience. Love the guy. Owed, not the state, United States, the state of Massachusetts money. At least they said he owed money. He's going on about his life. They're saying, give us the money. He's like, I don't owe you what you say I owe you. And he's negotiating with basically the Massachusetts equivalent of the IRS. And he thinks he's making progress. And one day he looks at his bank balance and it's missing the exact amount of money that Massachusetts said he owed. Pretty obvious what happened, right? They just sent a notice to the bank and said, give us the money. And the bank gave them the money. And there was no going back, and there was nothing to be done about it. That's not uncensorable. If somebody can turn off your ability to spend money, it's censorable money. So do you want censorable money? I don't. I want my money to be scarce, desirable, durable, portable, maintainable, defendable, exchangeable, predictable, almost infinitely fractionable, and uncensorable. You have one, one asset in the world that meets that criteria. There's no other crypto that meets that criteria. I don't care what your other, he's going, say American legend, he's going to XMR and LTC. So you hate money. Go ahead and do that. It's fun to be poor. I think you can let me know. These are both, both of them will be hammered as unregistered securities, especially Litecoin. Litecoin had a reward that was given to its originators. That makes it an unregistered security under the Howey test. They're about to come down on crypto hard. And very few cryptos have enough financial reserves to comply with the regulatory uh, oversight that will come. And the one that has the most is Ethereum. And I've talked about this before, but Ethereum doesn't do anything except make shit coins and allow shit coins to be exchanged and played with and do financing with each other. Ethereum is not a monetary instrument. It's a technology. It's an interesting technology, but it is not scarce and desirable and durable and portable and maintainable the way the Bitcoin is. And even something that you could say, well, you know, um, this is pretty good. Do you want pretty good or do you want the best? You want the best. You want the best. How good is Bitcoin? This is the number. I have not fact checked this this number. It's in Sailor's um, presentation. What he claims, and I have no reason to doubt this, that if you look at what it took to mine Bitcoin when it was first released on a forum by Satoshi, and you look at what it takes to mine Bitcoin today, it takes 50 trillion times more work. That seems a bit excessive to me. 
What if he's off by a factor of 100? What if it takes 50 million more times? And I think that's low, definitely. This little thing, relative to the rest of the world, has increased its capacity to defend itself by 50 trillion times? 500 million times? 50 million times. I don't care. Any of that. Any of that is unbelievable that it's been able to move that far, that fast. And that's how defensible it is. The harder it is to mine a Bitcoin, the more secure Bitcoin is in your wallet. That's just something people just, I think, have a hard time getting a full understanding of. So let me bring up real quick this screenshot from Sailor here. Let me make that as big as I can for you guys. And I'm not going to play it. I'm just going to, this is over the long horizon. He says, laser focus is rewarded. And your strategy is either cash bonds, the S&P 500, S&P plus Bitcoin or Bitcoin. And this is based on just past performance, the way any financial advisor would look at an asset portfolio. If you have a million dollars in cash right now and you leave it to your family as cash and it unlocks on 2123, your family will be left with $977 in in spending capability. They'll have a million dollars, but it'll buy what about a thousand dollars buys today. If you get bonds at about 3%, hold those for 100 years at a million dollars, you will have the spending capability of $31,000 in 100 years. If you're in the S&P and you do well and it tracks properly, right, and you just buy like S&P index funds and you have a million dollars today, if everything goes right, you'll have a million dollars in spending. You'll have a lot more dollars, but it will buy about 100 years later. At risk the entire time, it'll buy you about the same as it did before. If you split that million dollars and go a half a million in S&P, half a million in Bitcoin, being conservative with Bitcoin's return, a real rate of return, less inflation of 14% per annum is what this is based on. 14%, not the huge gains it's made in the past. You'd have about a half a billion dollars. If you went all in on Bitcoin, your heirs would become billionaires. So when I say you have one move, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. If you want security, do you want the best security, good security, great security, or shitty security? Well, what you want is the best. And the only reason right now, I've talked about this before, the only reason right now you don't have the best security at your home. Like the kind of security that a billionaire has at his home is because it's expensive. Because that's the only reason you don't have that kind of security. Because I would. I would have like Bruce Wayne level freaking security shit, right? If I if I was a multi-billionaire. With Bitcoin, I have that level of security around my assets. So if I want security, if I want defensibility, I want the best. Why would I settle for second best? See, and in time... People that think the way that I'm trying to get you to think, people that think about money. I'm not going to address this. So somebody's asking about address the volatility concern. There isn't one. If you're holding long term wealth, there is not a volatility concern in Bitcoin. If you need to spend money next week, don't put it in Bitcoin. Currency is for short term expenditures. 
assets or for long-term wealth heart. There isn't one. If you zoom out on the graph, there isn't volatility. There's a single direction that Bitcoin goes, because mathematically it has to. There isn't one, right? You want the best. You want the most defendable. You want the most exchangeable. People, well, I don't want Ripple because it's got more upside. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. You don't know what a market cap is. You can't do math. But it's certainly not more exchangeable. If you're going to spend a crypto and have the best chance that whoever you're going to spend it with is going to take it, it's Bitcoin. It's the most widely accepted cryptocurrency if you want to lump. I don't like lumping it in. But assets that work with cryptology, okay, it is the most accepted in the world. It's the most spendable. It's the most desirable. The fact that it's the most spendable makes you have it makes you realize it is the most desirable. As far as market demand, there is no place for second in money. There's no place for second in money. If you are in the fiat world right now, you know what you hold? You hold dollars. I don't care if you live in Australia. The majority of your wealth, if you are a fucking billionaire, is in dollars. Not Australian dollars, U.S. dollars. Because when you have a choice where to put your money, there's only one that's number one. And you might mitigate some risk and spread some things around. But in the end, the vast majority of your wealth goes into the number one asset that's available for your wealth. And right now in the mines of the people of the world, that's U.S. dollars. And you think, well, it's awful. Well, compare it to somebody else's money. Compare it to if you live in Greece. Compare it to if if you live in Venezuela, Argentina. Compare it to anywhere except where, where people already use the dollar, where the dollar is the national currency, like El Salvador, which also now has made Bitcoin a co-equivalent currency. It's recognized as currency in El Salvador, where else are you going to put your money that's going to give you all these things that is zero cost of maintenance infinitely exchangeable and is the largest sponge absorbing capital understand when you look at bitcoin you say well this is like a half a trillion dollar market cap right now where did that half trillion dollars come from have you ever thought about it that way and i would tell you Before the end, not before the end of this year, within the next year, it will be well back up over a trillion. And I think you're looking at maybe a two trillion dollar market cap as you go into the next bull market. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? It is absorbed from other asset classes. It has to come from somewhere. I mean, I know people want to throw around the whole rumor, Bitcoin is backed by nothing, it's vaporware. You don't understand it, I don't have time to explain it to you today. I don't. I just, I don't know that I have time to explain that ever again. I've done a fundamental series. If you go to the BitcoinBreakout.com and go back to the first, like, seven, eight episodes, all these, like, beginner questions I've already covered, I don't know, after doing this for 10 years, more than 10 years now, did I have the patience to answer those most basic questions anymore. There's so many people out there that have already answered all these questions, and I've done it so many times. If you actually wanted the answer, you would have the answer. I don't mean to beat you up. I'm just telling you, like, I'm being honest. I'm like the old rock band 
Do you want to hear that hit they had in 1971? And they're just freaking tired of playing that, and they're playing the new music, whether you wanted it or not. That's kind of where I am uh, with Bitcoin. But you have to understand that more and more wealthy people are doing the exact analysis that I'm giving you today that people like Michael Siller have already done and saying, hey, you know, uh, this seems like something I don't really want to ignore anymore. Maybe I need to put two or three or five percent of my wealth into this. And the institutional money's coming next. And it finally is coming. And I, I, I'm not going to tell you that they will approve BlackRock's ETF. I'm going to tell you I think it is a higher probability that they will approve it than they won't. And there's some stuff we're all, it's time to wrap up. I can't really get into on the back end that actually answers some of the reasons that the SEC gave in the past to turning them down. Do you, being able to go through, let's say, a regulated exchange the way you would handle custody, there's certain things that I believe that will get that done. Now, I get people when I talk about ETFs, you shouldn't be for ETFs. You should be for self-custody. Listen, it's money. It makes perfect sense if it's the best money that somebody would build another vehicle for it to exist in. And there's trillions of dollars that want at, that want to go into the sponge that is Bitcoin that can't right now. And the minute you have a registered security as a vehicle, there's all these monetary charters that just go ching and they open up. And when that money comes then what you've seen in the past is nothing. But even if that doesn't happen, even if Bitcoin just has a 14% real rate of return, real rate of return, the money manager's not taking 1%, the employees aren't taking 1%, the, the, the company managers aren't taking 1%, the shift in technology's not taking 2% this year, the maintenance on the building is not taking 1%. And so when you looked at it, you said, well, I had a, a you know, a 14 percent return. And what you had was a 2 percent return. A real like all in everything covered 14 percent. You're still looking at the only play you have right now. I know that's very hard to accept. Let's take a few questions. And. Uh, I'm looking at American legend. Would you do me a favor? This question right here. Expand that so I know what you're asking me. That question right there, and I'll come back to it after I answer these. American Legend has a lot of questions today. I smell newbie in the building. Uh, same guy. What are the best first steps to reduce grocery costs to begin stocking survival items? This one can be saved for later for a later day, of course. Yeah, uh, email me that. But you're right to be thinking about reducing expenditures and reducing your costs. That's one of the sides of the equation to build wealth. Uh, Builder of Castles says, I'm seeing a path Two economies. One, CBDC, blue cities and welfare. Two, Bitcoin, red states, alternative economy. What I want to know is, will the two trade or be able to trade? Okay, so we are still trading with Russia. Okay? We're still trading with Russia. They put sanctions on. Yeah, we're still trading with Russia. Right now, in the middle of a hot war. The Biden administration, after the Wagner Rebellion, put sanctions on the Wagner company in Africa. After the Wagner. So that means like a couple days ago. What's the point at this? What is it like? Basically, Putin like wipes out Wagner and now we're going to put sanctions on him. It's how stupid the Biden administration is. But if we trade with Russia in the middle of a hot proxy war. 
it, it, honest to God, when, when Russia and the United States had missiles pointed at each other, the Soviet Union would have fell apart in the 70s instead of the 80s and early 90s if we had just not if we had just not sold them wheat. We kept Russia afloat. You know, for all the talk of all the wheat that comes out of Ukraine today, it wasn't as much the case as defeating the whole Soviet Union in the 70s. And that was our agricultural revolution, the green revolution, and all the production going way up. But there had to be some place for the grain to go. So what did we do? We sold it to our enemy. U.S. companies sold jet fuel additives to the Nazis in the middle of World War Frickin' Two, while George Bush Sr. was serving in the United States Navy as a pilot in a hot war with Japan that was allied with the Nazis. Prescott Bush, that would be George Jr.'s granddaddy, was running Standard Oil and was selling a fuel additive from a subsidiary of Standard Oil to our IG Farvin in Germany and the early jets that the Germans had that gave them such an advantage against the British and American air forces wouldn't have been able to get off the ground without that additive that was being sold to them. And, and the, the, the grandson and, and uh, the, the, the grandson and great grandson of that man became or the father and, and grandfather, the, grand, the, the son and grandson of that man became presidents of the country. Do you think that red states and blue states will trade with each other if there is some sort of bifurcation like that? I think so. I think when one side has what another side wants and it's not where you can just go take it, that trade is how trade is actually the way that we avoid conflict. Like all this idea that will like, economically punish a country to avoid war is stupid. It's the dumbest thing you could do. First of all, it's cruel to the people in the country that have absolutely nothing to do with the thing you and this other country are fighting about. That's who suffers. Like the kings, the presidents, the oligarchs, they don't suffer when they're sanctioned. The people suffer on both sides of the equation. But it makes war eventually inevitable. Because you have this thing choking you. And if something chokes you long enough, you either decide to lay down and die or you fight back. Well, people in mass tend to sooner or later fight back, not lay down and die, not lay down and give up. American legend says a budget both personal and business is critical. Agreed. Certainly keep one. And I forecast also. OK, that's not really a question. And I have uh, Jeremy said, can you talk about what country adopted Bitcoin to save their economy? It was a few-ish years ago. It was it's El Salvador. And for all the shit talk about, you know, El Salvador's going broken, El Salvador's doing wonderful. And uh, let me see if there's any other questions. I'm looking to see if American Legend gave. Okay, here. <laughs> I don't even know what you're worried about here. American legends, I'm worried that if volatility exceeds my principal of $200 while I'm not looking, that I will lose my money. You have $200 in Bitcoin. You shouldn't worry about your money at all. You should worry that you don't have more in there in Bitcoin. 
you're not going to lose all your money because you watch or not going to not lose money because you watch the price action. So the only way that you lose all your money is for Bitcoin to go to zero. It's not going to go to zero. And if you're that worried about $200, I don't know if this subject's right for you right now. You haven't gotten your hands around how to manage money. If the maximum that you can put away for yourself in the best asset that you could find is $200. And to build wealth, you must first balance your life. I don't care what you store your surplus in. If there's not enough surplus to build with, you'll never get there. So it sounds to me, and I don't know you, so I don't want to pick on you, but it sounds to me, I'm spitballing here, that you have a problem both with outflow and income. And you can make all the budget you want, but if you don't fix that problem, and it's I can do a thousand, my mother would kill me. I, If you're making financial decisions and asking your mom, I'm not the person to take advice from. I don't mean to sound nasty. I'm just not like that. I'm not here to help you figure out what to do with your own money, but you have to ask mom first. That's, I don't know your age. You could be a 16 year old kid, right? I always try to stay cognizant of the fact that I don't just cause somebody has a cool looking icon or something. Right. Um, Joe Tippett says emergency money into Bitcoin as well. Will it be easy to move back and forth? Uh, or might as well. I would not, hold my emergency fund, my true emergency fund in Bitcoin. But what I might do when I'm absolutely sure that I'm looking at a bottom, which I was a few months ago, I was I, I remember telling everybody it might go down a little more or up a little and then back down. But this is it. You're looking at the bottom. I might at that point take a big chunk of what I have sitting aside as an emergency fund and call it dry powder and buy in hard at that bottom. I believe in buying in over time DCA every day, right? DCA every day. That doesn't mean I'm buying every day, but it means I'm probably buying every week. So you can aggregate that across like a daily average for that week, DCA every day. But I'm also a believer in you do have some that's reserved in capital. And if I'm sitting there going, yeah, you know what? $15,000 Bitcoin looks pretty freaking tasty, man. And I've got, 25 grand in emergency fund, I might spend 10, 15 of it on Bitcoin at that point. I might have. I don't know. Maybe I did, you know. Um, he says, yeah, that Air American Leslie doesn't make enough. You, you know what? You sound like a person that doesn't make enough, dude. You sound like a person with a poverty mindset, and it's not an insult. We all go through a stage in our life where we have that because we all go through a stage in our life, unless we are taken care of by our parents until we're like in our 50s, like a certain senator. We all go through a point where we're broke and we're poor and you need to go through it because if you don't, you will ruin your life with money. But so then you have a decision to make. Do you sit and do you look? Do you look at the future and just say, well, it won't get any better or some, you see thing, well, someday it will. Or do you actively participate in increasing your cash flow? Because I guarantee you, dude, right now, there's something you could be doing to earn an extra three to five hundred dollars a week every week ongoing until you figure something out with the underlying income. There's something you could be doing. What? I'm not going to tell you because there's a hundred things you could be doing and they might lead you to something that's far more prosperous or they might just be a stopgap measure. But that's up to you. Uh, T River Rat says, second question, do you strictly dollar cost average? Or is there a chart you use to time your buys? I don't use a chart at all. I don't do technical analysis, but I do look at mega cycles. 
right? I look at the macro cycle. I know there's a four-year halving. I know about you could all you gotta do is look at one big ass chart and you can you can look and go bottom, 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 and it's always within a few months in that cycle. So there are certain times that I'll buy more. The other thing I will do is, you know, and this is I understand that this is not everybody's in a position like I am where you have enough money that you can do something like this. But when I see like a big drop, I buy more on that buy. It's like a modified DCA. Like I'm going to buy at least 50 to $100 a week in Bitcoin. I'm just going to buy it. I, like, I haven't bought any this week. Whatever price, yeah, 100 bucks. Right. And I might buy a little bit less because maybe five people this month then or this week buy Bitcoin. So that's two hundred fifty dollars of Bitcoin. OK, then maybe I'll wait and I'll save some powder up, keep some powder dry. But when I'll see like so Bitcoin's crashing, I always get excited. I go look at the price. I'm like, it went down two percent. What are you people talking about? But if it really does take a dump. In a side, yeah, then I'll I'll throw in harder, but I don't do a lot of te technical analysis. It's just I know I get more sats. That, that's all it comes down to. Uh, another question. Pip and I says, uh, requesting suggestions on how to put Bitcoin into two wallets for sisters, two young kids. So I would say that if we're, we're talking about a couple hundred bucks or something like that, then, you know, you need to empower people. You need to tr trust people with the money you're giving them. I would, you know, assuming they have mobile devices, I would get them a good wallet. And I would show them how you're going to send the Bitcoin to them and then tell them not to spend it. And I would teach them about backup phrases and stuff like that. If you were talking like you're investing in their future and you're going to get you're like the rich uncle and you're going to give them five grand a piece, then I would go out and get a Trezor for each of them. And I would I would put it on there and I would show them how it works and I would show them that they have it. And I might even like take that rate back home and put it in my strong box and make sure there's paperwork in place that those devices go to them or their guardian if you die. So it all depends, but it's not hard. If you can send to a wallet, you can send to a wallet. They don't. This is the beauty of this. This is actually a really great point about what a great monetary system the Bitcoin network is. You could, if they have Internet access, show them how GetAlby works and send them $200 worth of Bitcoin in a browser-based wallet. I don't think it's the most secure thing. I use GetAlby for things like Zaps on Noster. Whenever I get up to like a couple hundred bucks in it, I'll withdraw it down to like $50, so I have some money in there to zap people with. But you could. You could go, if they have a mobile phone, and install something like Exodus, and then have show them how it works, how, and just take your wallet and go, boop, and they have it. They don't need a bank account. They don't need ID. They don't need an account with Coinbase. They don't need any of that shit. All you need is a wallet. So you decide how you want to do it, but that's, you know, that's the thing. Anyway, I think I'm going to wrap up now. Anyway, uh, Tommy, have you considered the impact of MSTR copycats in the future? Yes, I have. So here's what he means by that. This is what Tommy's saying, guys. What is the impact when other corporations follow the master link model and put corporate assets into Bitcoin, they take some of that reserve capital and put it in Bitcoin. It's almost unfathomable. If you look at a company like Apple or Amazon 
And you compare the amount of capital they have to a company like Masterlink, including what Masterlink borrowed, which was a very small amount of their purchases. It's like comparing Joe Spooty's tire emporium to freaking, you know, uh, what's the big tire company? Tire and wheels or whatever. Discount tire, right? Joe Spooty's little one-off tire stand to discount tire or Firestone. It's that dramatically different. People think Masterlink's a huge company. In some ways it is. But compared to Apple or, like, most of the companies that are, like, part of, like, the S&P 500 or whatever, it's nothing. It's a tiny mouse fart of a drop in the bucket. As that wall of money opens, again, what I'm saying is you've got to start thinking of Bitcoin as a sponge. And it's an infinite sponge. All the capital that wants in can get in. But what piece they get for their money is what changes. I put up a post when people said they couldn't afford to buy Bitcoin back in November, back in November. And it said, how many sats that you got for how much money? I should have had it pulled up. I'm not going to try to find it right now. Um, But I redid it recently. I put up a screenshot of it and I redid it. And it's almost half. It's like you get... 40% 40% less sats per dollar than you did in November. 40% less. And instead of thinking about it, how much it went up, that's, that's what you need to be thinking about. How, how, how much of it you could have got went down. You can buy Bitcoin $5 a buy on, on an app like Strike. I, people don't even get how powerful Strike really is. Now, I don't like some of the changes recently where you can't use a debit card to deposit anymore, and it takes longer to get money into it or whatever. But you know, you just throw a couple hundred bucks and leave it in cash until you want it to be Bitcoin. That's one way to look at it. And I have, like, right now in my Strike wallet, I have, like, seven bucks, $7. But I've used it to zap people on Noster for four cents. And I never bought Bitcoin. It was dollars. I sent dollars into the Lightning Network and four cents worth of Bitcoin came out on the other side. And you can buy $5 a buy. But what does $5 get you? How many sats do you get for $5? Somebody wants to look that up right now. That would be kind of cool for me because I, I really can't find it. How much is $5? How many Satoshis is 5 bucks? And then if you take that number and you multiply it by about 1.45, that's how many sats you would have gotten if you had bought Bitcoin in November, which isn't that long ago. What is it, eight months, seven months? That's kind of it's kind of insane. Jeremy is asking your podcast is like drinking from a firehose every week. I say that was the best podcast I ever had. Recent AI episode is gold. Do you put these in text form somewhere? No, there are no transcripts. But um, because of the way YouTube works right now, they're being generated. And I just happened to be playing with this yesterday. Using ChatGPT and a plug-in for any Chromium browser, and I use Brave or I use uh, Impervious, depending on what I'm doing, um, is their Chrome-based browsers. And I can extract not long after this episode's done, a transcript of it. And you can too. The problem is when you do it, 
it is a giant wall of text. There's no paragraph breaks. There's, it's just, it looks like a text file that's just a blob. And I was actually talking to Tom about this yesterday real briefly on Telegram and saying, you know, if we could make a way that that text could be auto-grabbed, formatted, and published on the blog, the transcript value to you guys, is it is what it is. But the SEO value to me would be huge. And if we could package that, selling it to other podcasters could be pretty profitable and lead to a lot more Bitcoin. So there's ways to do it for yourself. But what I started doing, I did it yesterday. I didn't do it with yesterday's episode. I did it with the previous day's episode. Using some other tools inside ChatGPT, and I just think maybe I'll find a better one. What I can do is create summaries of the videos and publish them. And if you go look at the one on AI at the survivalpodcast.com, right under the bullet points, right before you get to the resources, you'll see a link. And there's a PDF. It's like a one-page PDF that's a summary of that episode. I think it's lacking. I think there's probably more summary in my actual notes than in that. But, I, you know, there's hundreds of plugins. And I'm going to keep playing with it. And if I can streamline the process, what I think would be more valuable to you guys than, than a full transcript of every word I said would be the summary a condensed summary of the most important things that's broader than the notes. And I think that the value of either would be, and this is what I would really love to do. And Tom's probably like, shut up, shut up. Don't pay, don't tell anybody, but Hey, maybe somebody will, will help us. Right. Um, <laughs> he says, funny, you should ask that. Right. But this is what I'm really thinking would be an incredibly valuable thing. What if we could, like very little human input, mostly driven by AI and maybe Chrome jobs or something. Plugins to WordPress. What if every time I did a podcast, the whole podcast was made automatically into a transcript? The transcript would have, let's say, 10 minute blocks or five minute blocks because all of the players, the podcast players on WordPress, you can, if you have a, the right URL, you can jump to you know, 10 minutes and 30 seconds in. And so that if you were searching episodes, if you were searching episodes and you could find all the, ep like say you were trying to learn about a permaculture thing. And so you put in Hugo culture and it found all the episodes with a high amount of Hugo culture, but maybe they weren't called Hugo culture episodes. Maybe it was an expert panel Q and a, and Paul Wheaton did a, did a, a segment on, on Hugo culture. And you could see the transcript and have the part highlighted that contains what you were looking for. Click a button and hear that segment from a catalog of over 3,000 podcasts. That would be freaking amazing. And I know there is a way to do it, right? There is a way to do it, but how is the question? And I don't need another job. I would need to be able to put a particular high amount of uh, of of effort into it. I, I have to be able to have this thing be streamlined, and it looks like maybe somebody is interested in helping with that. Now, if you are, this is the kind of way I roll between me, you, and Tom. If we can have this thing, then we can talk about pieces of action. Because I think that if you had a tool that did this, unless it was so clonable that nobody would pay for it, you know, if you could wrap this into like a $20 WordPress plugin, 
and have automated income, maybe we could all stack a lot more sats. Anyway, with that, if you like the show and the work that I do and you want to help support us, one of the ways that you can do that is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. And I bet you think I have like a Bitcoin wallet or something for you today. Nope. If you want all my tools for Bitcoin, go to thebitcoinbreakout.com and click on tools and you'll see everything I recommend for Bitcoin there, um, including my uh, removal of Ledger because of their bullshit. Anyway, uh, today's item of the day for my TSPAS item of the day has nothing to do with Bitcoin. It is an item for your kitchen. It is Brazilian pink peppercorns. It is awesome. They are delicious. I did a little workshop here right after I first discovered these things. And my buddy David was over, and there were some students outside, and he had this, this little bowl. And he was eating these peppercorns out of the bowl like candy because they're not super hot like black pepper. They're a lot more, they have like a pepper characteristic and a fruitiness and a sweetness. And people were trying them, and they're like, they're delicious. And the guy goes, oh, are these Brazilian uh, pep- from the pepper tree? And he's like, I don't know. And the guy's like, yeah, they, they grow on a tree, a Brazilian pepper tree. And David goes, they grow in a jar in Jack's house, right? Like you're eating them like snacks. It's delicious on food. Um, somebody commented that they made an amazing simple syrup infused with them for making mixed drinks. I can see that working. They're used on everything from savory dishes to desserts. They're not expensive. They're totally worth exploring. They are not something you need to put in a pepper grinder like black pepper. They're very soft. When I want to use some not whole, I throw a handful into a mortar and pestle in a couple seconds, pound them, and when you're good to go. But definitely check these out. Remember, you can always support our work and everything we do just by beginning your online shopping at tspaz.com. And, guys, the the you know, I told you guys yesterday the uh, the wall adapter was like the uh, best-selling item of the year. And was last year. This year, it might be the daggone fly traps I ran earlier. Um, I've gotten so much feedback on them. I guess it's just the year of the flies. So just realize there's a lot of cool stuff you can find at T-SPAS. I've always uh, maintained integrity with the program. I don't put something up there I would spend my own money on. And uh, you know you can trust my reviews. They're not just to make money. Um, they are because people always ask me what I recommend. And I, I run everything I purchase in my life. You know, we talked about wealth building today. So let's finish with wealth building. And, and how does it relates to the items I recommend for you to buy? Everything in my life that's more than a few bucks. If, if, if I look at it and I'm like, do I need to buy this or not? Am I ready to spend this $50 or not? You know, if it's like five bucks and I want it, I'm just going to buy it. Right? I've gotten a point in my life where I can act that way. But I, the way I got there was by acting this way, which, it, first of all, I had the discipline to not spend the five when I didn't have it to spend it. That's how you get to where you always have the five bucks to spend. But if it's something where I, I feel any bit of do I buy this or not, first thing I do now, fitting with today's show, I price it in Satoshis. Do I really want to give 10 million Satoshis for this? It's just a, it's a good filter to go through. Once I decide, like, I do want this. Okay, well, do I want this one? Or should I see what competitive products are out there? Look for better quality, et cetera. I'm looking for a price-to-value ratio. People often think the most expensive is the best. That's often not the case. Sometimes it is. But sometimes you don't need the best. You need the best price-to-value ratio. And so everything I do in life, I look for the best price-to-value ratio. And if it's a significant expenditure, I'm not above dropping it into a spreadsheet and working out the cost of ownership across 10 years versus the cost out of my pocket today. Because something that costs me a little bit more today 
but a lot less annualized because of replacement, I'll buy that. I'll make the higher investment. If the higher investment just gets me a better brand or something like that, it doesn't really change the long-term outlook at all, I'll buy the less expensive item. If failure is, you know, how critical is failure? That's part of the price-to-value relationship. Like, I want very high-quality pumps in my aquatic systems. Because if one dies on a 106-degree day like yesterday, I could end up with dead fish, even if I checked it right before I started, by the time I'm finishing this podcast when it's that hot out. So I want two pumps, and I want very good ones. You know, if I'm putting a, an air pump into a 10-gallon aquarium, I'll use a Tetra you know, whisper that's 12 bucks price to value ratio. If you want to start building wealth, this is the other thing that you need to start doing. How, how do you make sure you're always doing this? Because it's less about your short term cash flow and more about your long term wealth building. Buying a more expensive garden hose this week will not put more money in your pocket this week. It won't. It'll put less. You could have bought the $20 piece of shit hose. It would have sort of worked. It'll have holes in it, and you'll be throwing it away next year. But it's $20. A good $60, $70 hose this week is going to take an extra 50 bucks out of your pocket. But when you're using it in eight years, and you're still using it, and all you did was put a, a $5 end on it because the end finally wore out, then you're you're way ahead. And when I talk like that, people will say, I'm not putting a garden hose in a spreadsheet. That's why you don't have any money. That's why you don't have any money. There was a talk show my wife was watching years ago, and I popped in, and uh, I look in on this talk show, and I'm like, what is this? And she goes, these are like blue-collar millionaires talking to the audience about how to get rich. And it was like an Oprah. I don't think it was Oprah. It was like Oprah or something like that. You know? And I'm like, well, I, I, I was going to take lunch, so I'll sit here and listen to this. And this guy was talking about, he goes to lunch once a week at Costco, and he gets the $1.50 deal for the big hot dog in the drink. I don't recommend that. But I don't recommend it because of the quality of the nutrition. A giant soda is not good for you. I'll leave it at that. Um, bread's not great either, and who knows what's in those hot dogs. But, I mean, his is a guy that's the kind of food he eats anyway. He's a multimillionaire. He's like, I got to go to Costco once a week. I time it so that I take one lunch a week at Costco. This is what I get. It costs me $1.50. So I bulk buy. I save money on all my stuff in my house, and I have this really cheap lunch once a week. That's just one way that you can put more money in your pocket. And this lady in the audience was freaking like a Karen. This is so long ago, they didn't call them Karens yet. She was a Karen, a pre-Karen Karen, right? And she basically turned a little hand, and she was just mad as shit. You could see tapping her foot with that woman anger, you know. Every married guy, you know that woman anger, right? Like, it sucks if it's your wife that has that woman anger. Even if it's not at you, you're still like, oh, shit, this is going to be bad. So, you know, seeing the opportunity, the host goes out with the microphone for the woman anger and says, yes, and what would you like to say? She goes, there is no way I'm eating at a little plastic table at the front of a Costco. And this guy doesn't even take a breath and just goes, that's why I'm up here and you're out there. If you want to build wealth, you're going to have to make sacrifices and work harder. But the reason I did today's show and the reason I will not leave you alone about Bitcoin, guys and gals, is the worst thing 
is for you to do all the rest of this stuff and work so hard and spend that life force, that light energy, life energy, that dash of yours. Pour that energy in and really do work hard and really do budget and really do save. And then not realize the entire time you're doing it, you're on a treadmill and all of the surplus you've created and put away for the future is being sucked by vampires. And even if your life ends up okay and you end up with enough money and you don't run out of money before you die, which is literally the plan a retirement advisor will make with you. We want to make sure you have enough money that you die and you still have some left. Gee, I, I kind of like to have a little bit loftier goal than that. But as long as your storage device, and that's what I'll finish with, Dave, your money is a thermodynamic storage device for the energy you've expended. You go out and you take risks, you do hard work, you make sacrifice, and you end up with some extra money every week, and you put it in your storage device. Think of it as a battery. It's a battery. And it's a battery with no limitations to how much energy can go. It can hold an infinite amount of energy. As much as you can make, it can hold. But if you got paid in energy every week and you had two batteries, one for spending and one for saving, this is your saving one, and over a year you put 1,000 or 10,000 energy units, let's say 10,000 energy units, you were a good ant, you put 10,000 energy units in this battery. When you turned it on and said, you know, how many energy units are in it, you'd expect to say 10,000. When it says 9,100 at the end of the year, and that's what inflation did to you, you're like, where's my freaking energy? Well, the battery leaked. That's what happened. The battery leaked. It leaked out. And no, this is not a hardware wall. It's a remote control for my air conditioner. <laughs> the, the battery leaked. But if you have a battery in a cell phone and you charge it up and you don't use it, you turn it off. You don't use it. You turn it on. And it's not at 100%. It's at like 90% a few weeks later. It literally leaked. Your monetary battery doesn't leak. The freaking parasites suck your energy unit right out of your device into their own. That's what inflation is. Inflation is not just prices going up and the value of money going down. It is new money sucking value from old money. And that means the money you've worked so hard for that you've put away at will, the banks, the oligarchs, the government, the bureaucracy, the politicians at will can take money out of your safe and put it in their own. That's what inflation is. That's how freaking evil it is. If you want to preserve wealth, you have one best move right now with your surplus capital. Sweep your surplus capital into Bitcoin. Stay humble. Stack, stack sats. Hodl. Don't trade. Don't try to outsmart the market. Most of the money will be made one day out of the year. It's just constant, constant, constant patience. Don't let the simplicity don't let the simplicity fool you. Building a fire is very simple. Tinder, kindling, stock, spark, fire. You can do all kinds of shit to get a fire. But if you follow the simple system, you always get a fire. Bitcoin, in Michael Saylor's words, is a fire lit by Satoshi in cyberspace. An immortal fire. Take care, guys. I'll catch you tomorrow with an expert counsel Q&A show. Are they gonna bail you out? Or 